Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon, and this is the podcast where we try to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs. Today, my guest is Ben Yenny. He's a producer up in the Bay Area, as the San Francisco Bay Area, and he has just started a new organization called the Producers Foundry, and he'll talk more about it in the episode. But during the conversation, I was trying to add some more value to you, the listeners, by being sort of a role-playing thing, as if I was a aspiring filmmaker um, at one of his uh, meetups that he throws over in um, San Francisco, and you'll hear more about it. So it's just a little bit different than some of the other podcasts I've uh, done before, and it's all just to try to give you guys value. And speaking of value, a lot of you know that if you go to freegearguide.com, you'll get a free uh, gear guide. It's basically an equipment list of everything that I use to make a feature film for $500 with no crew. And again, that's at freegearguide.com. It's a free gift to you from me. But with that said, let's get on with the interview with producer Ben Yenny here at the Film Trooper Podcast. Hey, I'm... Let me start again because I was terrible. <laughs> Actually, I'm here with Ben Yenny. Did I pronounce that correct? Yes, you did. Okay, and you are a producer, but why don't you just like, like we met at a party and someone says, hey, you got to meet this guy, Ben, and he, um, he's in film as well. And then we go up and we start talking. Give me your quick, like, uh, short pitch of like who you are, what you do, and your interest in film and sort of how you got into film. Okay. Well, uh, I started as a producer, then I uh, put in some time at the Institute for International Film Finance, and uh, I worked, after working there, um, I segued to another couple school-type companies and realized that I had learned quite a lot about uh, film distribution and made quite a lot of contacts via my time organizing panels on film finance and distribution and I decided to start a repping agency with that uh, and the contacts I'd made at AFM being the focus on connecting filmmakers with distributors and helping filmmakers find the right distribution deals. Wow, that's a handful. That, let me ask you, um, for those who don't know, if you're wondering, AFM is the American film market. Uh, mm-hmm. It takes place in November uh, pretty much every year. Um, or every November. I, I, don't know, I've, I think it's one time mm-hmm. it was in October, but I think it's November every year in Santa Monica. And essentially, it's the same group of buyers and sellers of film, uh, like for all the foreign markets around the world. The same group kind of travels to like, you'll find them at the Cannes Film Market. Not necessarily, you know, we always get confused with the Cannes Film Festival and the Cannes Film Market um, or the Con. Is it Cannes or Con? Um, I've heard it both ways. I think technically it's con, okay. but uh, a lot of people do say can. Right. So the cool thing about the AFM is that you get that same group of um, buyers and sellers, and they're sort of um, that's the only American territory they sh- sort of show up at um, per se. And uh, you, but it doesn't have all the frills or the uh, glamour as the con film festival does because there's uh, I think there's the um, AFI film festival that goes on at the same time so it's mm-hmm. sort of like an unofficial adoption of the festival circuit at the same time but I don't know yeah um, no you oh, go ahead you are right on that um, AFI is is somewhat attached to AFM but not really um, I 
So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so those who don't know, um, but why we're talking about AFM and what Ben does. Uh, so he and I connected through Twitter because Twitter's awesome in that way. And just over time, uh, just sharing uh, film tidbits and so on. And he just recently uh, wrote a book and published it on Amazon. And Ben, why don't you tell us more about this book and, and why we were kind of segueing from AFM to this book? Well, the book is called The Gorilla Rep, American Film Market Distribution Success on No Budget. Um, And I wrote it as a tale of some of the things that I've learned at the American film market. Uh, AFM is kind of its own social situation that, that is very foreign to a lot of people. So um, after I'd been going for four years, I decided to take some of what I'd learned and put it down in a book because a book didn't really exist on this subject matter, and it seemed like something to add that was worthy to add to the public consciousness. Very nice. And I got a chance to read the book, and it's excellent. Um, You know, I've had my experience at AFM, and it definitely rung true. Um, It's been a couple of years since I've been there. Um, alongside with uh, what Stacy Parks does at Film Specific, she runs like a boot camp of AFM and, you know, uh, for years. So I think it's fantastic that Ben's book is out there because it's a great compliment in a book format that, you know, that's kind of, it goes hands to hand, hand in hand with what, uh, you know, Stacy Parks is doing over Film Specific and so on. Um, so those of you who get a chance, we'll make sure we get the links and everything set up in the show notes so that you can get access to this book. Um, it's really, you know, one of the, the key things about your book that I loved was near the end. Like mm-hmm. uh, with all the uh, questions and answers that you were able to get with the uh, seasoned um, distributors and pr- other producers and other seasoned um, professionals that go to AFM and get their advice from uh, in th- those little case studies and uh, are excellent and worth every penny when you buy the book. So mm-hmm. let me ask you, how did you get interested in film? And tell us a little bit more. I'm kind of curious, like, so if you've been through the, the, the international film financing, you mentioned, what was it again that you, you were at? The, the um, I actually am the former chapter leader for the Institute for International Film Finance, San Francisco, Vancouver, New York, and Los Angeles chapters. Great. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. And I would love to hear, like, to sort of your perspective of where we are, like sort of the uh, State of the Union in terms of independent film uh, and all your experience of like sort of your um, your think tank on that. So I'll let mm-hmm. you go. Uh, just tell us like how you got in film and then sort of where you think the State of the Union is right now. Well, uh, I got into film uh, like <laughs> – I got into film at the end of high school. I made a couple videos and realized I really liked it, so I went to film school. Um, I thought I wanted to be a writer-director, but as I went into film school, I realized I was a much better producer, and then I ended up shifting focus more and more towards the entrepreneurial and business side of film. It just was... I was just drawn to it, and uh, when I moved out here to San Francisco... uh, I got a distribution deal at AFM the second time I was there, and then I used that to try to pursue the film Angels. And uh, I eventually got a meeting with the head of the film Angels, and it was one of those phone meetings where you can tell that they're trying to get you off the phone within five minutes. The call (laughs) lasted an hour and a half, and he offered me a job the next day running the IIFF, and by the end of it I was running four territories. 
So um, that's basically how I ended up in this part of film. Um, I think the state. I think it's pretty clear that we're in a state of massive change in the industry here. Um, I think that it. I think there's a lot of opportunity, but it's going to be really, really difficult to distinguish yourself from the pack moving forward. And I think that what's going to be happening as we move forward is that um, content aggregators and people with large lists are going to be more and more important moving forward, as well as uh, PR people and branding experts are going to be what really help separate filmmaker, um, just people who went to film school and make a couple movies that never actually go anywhere and the people who actually can make a career making films. When I went to AFM a couple of years ago, I saw the sort of the, you know, the first stage of the implosion where the economy had crashed and just seeing all the um, sort of uneasiness that was going on because it was like just a, a huge surplus of money just went it evaporated it, like it just wasn't there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then we just saw it left and right. These small like indie houses that were part of the um, the um, studio system were just dropping off left and right, and so I, you know, for me personally, I was thinking like, there's got to be a better way. Like this can't be the only system, you know. For a mm-hmm. filmmaker, the concept is like, look, all you want to do is make your films, right? Now, if you have the desire to, you know, be seen as the auteur and you want to, you know, have sort of the fame and riches and so like that, then your motivation is already tainted because it's like. That's sort of why you're doing, you know, why you want to go down that route is to get that uh, fame and glory. But if you mm-hmm. just, as an artist, you just have like this need to express yourself and there's the format of film and being that it's so inexpensive. I mean, with the, the digital tools now, it, it just floors me. But it's just really with, within the last year when um, all these direct distribution platforms just hit the market marketplace. It's just it just opened mm-hmm. the floodgates. Like this is insane because their production is long, long, no longer a barrier because anybody can make a film. Um, you know, I can attest. I mean, that's what the cube was made for. It was five hundred dollars and didn't even have a crew. So then, you know, and then distribution is no longer a barrier because you could throw it up onto um, throw it up. You, <laughs> so those <laughs> international listeners might go throw up. No, it's the, you know, you can place it up online and sell it directly to audiences worldwide. So yes, so those things are taken care of. But the last part of it, like you mentioned, is being heard. You mentioned PR firms and marketing firms. So mm-hmm. the marketing arm of it, and you mentioned lists, those who content aggregators that have a large list, but probably more specifically, a very specific list. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that Film is no – it's kind of like uh, – I think I heard something like Mark Marin talk about this on one of his uh, WTF podcasts. He's like, you know, you go to a bar or something like that and they, they'll usually have something like, tonight we got blues night or, you know, we're doing hip-hop night. You mm-hmm. know, So you understand this sort of the genre of music that they're doing or we're doing like, you know, there's a tribute band playing. So it's very specific. But he says that, you know, but then they'll just say, we have comedy night, you know. <laughs> But mm-hmm. in his world, there's very specific – there's different uh, genres or niches of comedy. And so just to call it general comedy night, it's sort of like, hey, we got movie night, you know? Mm-hmm. But what kind of movie? You know, it's like people that like foreign films with subtitles is another – is a, a specific group versus the, 
you know, uh, B-rated sort of Roger Corman-style films, you know. And uh, with that understanding of those lists, those aggregators or curators that actually have a specific list to a specific audience will, you know, um, hold the greater weight, like you said. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are. Um, I I would love to know, like, what you've seen in terms of your time, you know, running the uh, film financing um, organization that you did. Um, and not only where you you kind of mentioned where you think the st- uh, the state of the union is, but how do you think filmmakers need to get there? Like just sort of in your mm-hmm. own perspective. I think you're very right on filmmakers focusing focusing on uh, more and more niche audiences um, and really finding a community that they can be a part of and be a voice of. Um, there are a lot of different we're we're really becoming kind of more segmented as a society so if you're going to market if you want to actually market your film then finding a community that you can actually engage with and be a part of to help market your film is something you should be doing while you're still writing the script even not only will you be more able to market your film when it's done, but it'll be a lot more authentic if you've engaged with the community from the script stage. Um, I'm kind of off in the weeds on that there, but um, the um, I think the biggest thing to financing your film these days is having your target market um, well-defined from an early stage, and that's feeds into the whole community piece on this you can if you can get your sweet spot and actually engage with the sweet spot for your marketing while you're still in development then you're going to have a lot easier time monetizing your film once you actually complete it um the biggest things that i've learned uh from running the institute for international film finance and a couple of other uh similar educational organizations are the is that it's consistently amazing to me how few filmmakers actually think about the marketing of their film and just focus entirely on the making of it and not actually any of the real business of film. What do you it's th- one re- I'm what, sorry. Yes. I was going to ask, where do you think that stems from? I mean, I have my own ideas, but mm-hmm. uh, I would love to hear your analysis or sort of your perspective. Like, why is that such a root problem for so many filmmakers around the world? What do you think feeds into this concept that uh, that they just think about the, the production of it and know and kind of cross their fingers and hope something wonderful happens at the back end? So where do you think that stems from? I think a lot of it is a problem is a systemic problem in the education system for film. Um, film schools maybe when if you get your bachelor's in film, you take maybe one or if you're lucky two classes on how you monetize a film. And that's if you're a producer. If you're a director, a lot of them don't take the classes at all. Um, And there's this whole... Film school seems to me to teach a lot about the studio system of making a movie, but never really teaches about the act of fundraising or marketing or actually monetizing your film. That's actually one thing that I'm trying to do and help make some change with uh with 
the organization I'm I started with a couple people called the Producer Foundry. Uh, the Producer Foundry is a business school for independent film that focuses entirely on teaching marketing, business, and uh, the and the other side of the entrepreneurial coin for filmmakers. Filmmakers have a lot of the same skills as entrepreneurs. Um, they're able to overcome any obstacle to make a movie. They're able to bring together a crew and really in the end they can create a product but they don't know how to market it, finance it, or distribute it. So that's kind of what we're hoping to, that's what a lot of people are hoping to do out in this sphere. People like Stacy Parks, yourself, um, Sherry Candler, and more people are trying to get this information out there but there's no real organization that can help get it into the actual education system. And that's kind of what we're, that's our end goal with the producer foundry is to actually have it be more part of actual film education, not just something that the interested do in their own time on the internet. Um, yeah, actually, it's. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought up the producers uh, foundry because you have this uh, podcast series um, uh, with your co-host. Can you? What's his name again? Randy. Yes. Uh, what's his yes. full name? Randy Hall. Randy Hall. Yeah, he's great. And you guys mm-hmm. have a there's there's the small amount of episodes I've listened to um, are very imp- uh, inf- informative and impactful. And I love the fact that you said. You guys have started the Producers Foundry, but you did like some initial meetups that, were much, that did much bigger and better than you expected. Can you give a little bit more detail about that? Yeah. Um, when we started the Producer Foundry, uh, we we just put it up on meetup at the end of January this year. Um, and this is and, the Bay Area, right? The San Francisco yes, Bay Area? Yes, the Bay Area. Okay. Um, we um, put it out, and before we even posted a meetup, we had more than 120 members. Um just from some buzz that uh, Meetup sends out a bunch of emails for you uh, to help start your base. And um, are you still there? I, yeah. Uh, Sorry, did you just cool. sound like I lost you? Uh, my computer screen went to sleep, so I wasn't sure. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm here. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. great. Keep going about Meetup because it's uh, an um, amazing tool. Yeah. Meetup is really good. It sends out something like 400 emails to get people to join your group when you join. And um, when we scheduled our first meetup, uh, we kind of captured a zeitgeist, and uh, we had more than 80 people at our first meetup when we were really only hoping to get maybe 20. Um, Our second meetup, we had about 50. Our third, we did uh, the day after a holiday, so it was less. And our last one was kind of intimate um, because we did a pitch panel the week before and most of our uh, audience was at the paid pitch panel instead of our just uh, more informal town hall. But um, the pitch panel went really well. And uh, there was some and we there was one thing we did with that that um, I thought was just kind of um, common sense but actually seemed to throw a lot of filmmakers for a loop um this pitch panel was basically to be a work was designed to be a workshop 
um, to help filmmakers learn how to pitch to investors. Mm-hmm. And um, the way we did it was just to structure it on a Silicon Valley investor pitch because it's our backyard. Um, and there's a pretty well-formatted um, pitch for a tech uh, investment, and we just basically said, oh, yeah, model it on this and sent out a couple of sample PowerPoints. Um, and I, I don't think that filmmaker, a lot of filmmakers had ever thought of actually structuring a film pitch uh, like a, a tech Silicon space, Valley, yeah. like like a tech space pitch, and um, we got a lot of feedback that they really liked that we were teaching this, and it. Um, our panel had a couple of actually had a fairly well known um, angel uh, connector on it and the first pitch we had was good and he was talking about all these different sorts of monetization paths that are well outside the realm of standard film monetization and could result in some pretty big exits if this woman built followed the guy's advice um i it's not my project so i don't want to say what exactly what it was but um the it's interesting to see how getting more people from the tech world and the business world there could really shake up some ideas on how we think about monetizing a film um i would love to if if you're game for it um since we're kind of near the you're in the 20 minute mark here just have some fun and like actually Let's do some sort of uh, role playing of, you know, I'm a filmmaker. I'm at this meetup, um, the Producers Foundry. And how would, um, you know, before I pitch my project or whatever it might be, how would um, how would an angel investor look at it? Like what are they looking for that would help sh- reshape sort of our concept of like making a film? Because like, again, we talked about, you know, you, you brought it up like the educational system of the film schools are all based in uh, teaching you the production part of it of the studio system and if that is imploding the studio system and there's all these other avenues uh, for monetization of media and it's not being taught um, you know my concept my feeling is is that we've forced all of us filmmakers to chase after this one brass ring that you know the the few lucky one percent that get to work in the studio system and so that creates this sort of mindset of scarcity and so that's why you get such cynical uh filmmakers so not necessarily the most supportive they all want everyone to look at their stuff but rarely do you know a lot of people you know take time to invest into other people's work or look at other people's work um, because they're all just wrapped up into this uh, scarcity mindset of like I, I've got to get to that one percent. So if we blow up open the doors and try to be more practical about it and say there are more avenues, more ways to monetize your film content or your film product or your film digital product, how would an angel investor, you know, at these meetings, what would their pitch be to filmmakers? Like, look, this is what we're looking for. We need to have some sort of a business plan or something presented to us where we can monetize in, th- in these ways and um, our exit strategy or whatever it might be. 
that you know the people that I represent um, they're looking for an investment, but they're also looking for something that they can be proud that they're a part of or something like that. I don't know if you can kind of go a little bit more detail, like sort of that perspective, and I can play the role of the the newbie filmmaker showing up at the um, one of these meetups and you know try to answer those types mm-hmm. of questions. Yeah, I can do that. Um, so, what would your um... project be? Would that yeah, help? So would your okay, yeah, yeah. Be, yeah. So, say I have a, um, I have a like the, this next film I'm working on is uh, would be in the horror genre, but most specifically, it's a ghost story. You know, so it's not we're not mm-hmm. talking, you know, bloody demons and stuff like that. So um, that's sort of the genre. I don't. Um, I'll just give you that. That way, the okay. the angel investor could work with like, okay, I got a genre. Yeah. Um, the big thing about angel investors is that they are, by definition, not part of the industry. Um, that is, so they don't necessarily know the same things we know about how genre influences the selling of a film and all of that. That's something that a lot of times you have to explain to your angel investor and part of what you need to be able to do to develop a sex- successful relationship with an angel investor is to actually be their educator to a certain level and actually show them how the industry works and how you monetize. So you need to become somewhat of an expert in film monetization yourself. Um now oh, okay let's 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 yeah. uh, we'll do like a, a role playing like i said just i'm trying to give okay. value yeah. to anybody who's going to listen so okay yes. okay with that said it goes re- why go so the question is why the horror genre the ghost story genre well number one is like yes. um i realize that within the horror genre there are sub sub genres there's zombie films there's you know vampire films you know uh there are films what we call just like gore fest that are just meant to be like uh, slasher films where it's set up as like, you know, a maniac killer, you know, or then there's sort of these ghost stories, you know, you know, paranormal activity, you know, or even poltergeist, those types of films, or even the conjuring to some extent had demon possession, but it was just a really good ghost story in, in some sense. And um, so to tell the uh, angel investor, explain like, look, you know, you go into a record store, you, you want to, you know, or whatever it is, you're looking for a type of music. There's, you know, do you want your hip-hop music? Do you want your alt-indie? Do you want your classical? Do you want a contemporary adult? Or whatever it might be. So we always put things in categories. The same holds true with film. Obviously, you know, I'm not making a comedy. I'm not making a drama on a heavy subject um, about, like, Alzheimer's or anything like that. Because this is a, a subset genre of the horror genre. And no matter... Um, you know, does my film add any value to what's already been out there? Well, the reality is, is everybody likes to have something new. And so we're kind of playing on that concept. Like if you can make something new for that weekend, for the weekend scare, because uh, a lot of the film goers or people that, you know, looking to uh, rent a film, even online, um, horror does well because it does well um, internationally because you don't need a lot of dialogue because the most visceral sort of emotional response to the horror genre is people being scared and people mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what country you're at you can definitely relate to that um, so that is designed to to work within that genre it's a very competitive genre but you know if you niche down to much more like this is just like a a good ghost story, then you kind of weed out like, okay, 
those who just wanted to watch a zombie film, those who wanted to watch a slash, you know, slash and gore film. Now, okay, so now we're niching down to a very specific group that we can uh, reach out to and monetize to. So, okay, so how that, big is that group? That is, um, that's a good question, and that's something that I need to to do further research on to get back to you as an angel investor. But if it's say like um, say we there's online there's x amount of paranormal uh paranormal groups research groups mm-hmm. and within those groups that they listed uh we have reached out to all these groups and um i'm going to say there's you know i'll say like there's a you know two million members worldwide in all in all these various paranormal groups you know so two million so if we use sort of the internet uh maybe text-based sort of conversion rates because we think we might be able to monetize from three percent of that you know, so maybe three hundred thousand. Is that right? I think my math mm-hmm. is bad, but something like that. <laughs> so this is me, this is me being off the cuff talking to you like an angel investor. Yeah, having none of my shit prepared. But this is me at your one of your meetups. So this is us mm-hmm. doing the role playing. So I said, okay, say we have three hundred thousand, potentially three hundred thousand. You know, people to monetize so that we can really focus our marketing towards um, and our effort to to what this film is about. Um, so the what the price point is is like say the worst case scenario is like we sell it for 99 cents so you know we profit 300,000 you know but the best thing is like if we can bundle it if we can perhaps you know take the film and bundle it with some other things that are that are of value to this very specific group and then we can up the price point to say $20 to say imagine if it was like we had a $100 value product I don't know what that is yet you know, but we can mm-hmm. discuss about it. But imagine if we were able to sell uh, three hundred thousand units at a hundred bucks a pop. You know, and so th- mm-hmm. something like that. So then that way, the investor, the angel investor, go, okay, I see how much. You know, because it's almost like I feel like I'm the Shark Tank now. <laughs> I have to prove. Yeah, like... no, actually, you're going in the right direction, though. That's exactly what investors want to hear. They want to know exactly how big your market size, how big the total market is, um, and how you plan to actually get to them. Um, there's, I don't remember whether this was on, um, Film Insight or another interview series I did, but, um, Sheridan Tatsuno, who is a, uh, he, he made his money in his bank back in, uh, Silicon Valley, and then he went on to be, to help start the Institute for International Film Finance, which is how I met him. Um, but he, uh, says that there are two parts of marketing and the, the, one of the most important is identifying your target market. And it's then basically the way he described it is that identifying your target market is like placing the bullseye, which enables your marketers to shoot the arrow. And what you've already done there is you've identified your target market and the size. Now what you need is somebody with a is a good marketer to figure out exactly how you're going to engage and close those sales. And that is uh, from where you've been on that. You're already miles ahead of a lot of the people I talk to, which is good. Um, and I'd love to have more people like you actually engaging and starting these sorts of conversations at the meetup. <laughs> yeah, I got. I have. I have family in the Bay Area, so I got to get there uh, yeah. and stop by one of the, and try to time it up. Um, mm-hmm. So let me ask you. So then the angel investor says, "Okay, so it's like a shark. It's at the Shark Tank. So the angel investor, you know, goes the way uh, Mr. Wonderful explains it. He says we are the most powerful. He uh, he believes that the Shark Tank is the most powerful angel investment group 
there is in the world because they have the medium of television, you know, to like, even if you don't get picked up, a lot of these uh, startup little companies, inventors, you know, get somewhere <laughs> just because of the fact they were on Shark Tank. So, mm-hmm. um, so with that said, so I'm in this meeting with the angel investor. The angel investor is looking to what is their incentive and what is their motivation a lot of times, um, you know, obviously to make money. But there's got to be something more to that. What, what do you think that is? At least in the tech sphere, a lot of angel investors, um, especially if they're interested in film, aren't really in it for the money. They are. They want to make not make a loss. And if you can make them profit, that's great. Um, but a lot of them want to actually have something a little bit more exciting. Um, I mean, tech investors tend to invest fairly safely in new apps that have strong proven business models and can break out and make a good profit for them. Film is a bit more of a sell on them because a, a, a good return on a tech investment is 10x reasonably the most you could ever hope for the most you could ever really advertise on a film would be 3x and that's if you've got one hell of a marketing plan <laughs> and a lot of times in a lot of times you'll be lucky just to make what you put in back in the current market um but the way you say the way you get an angel investor in, interested is by selling just part of it is actually just selling the glamour of the investment and saying you get to be an executive producer and you have and you get to be part of making this film of actually getting this film made i've had it's not all that goes on that because there are plenty of films being made and I and I there are plenty of films being made and the investors don't want to just throw money down a hole so you do have to have your business and how you're going to do your best to make your money back but you're never going to make the sale on strength of finances alone you need to find something else with the film and why your film needs to be made and you need to sell not only the marketing and the monetization path but you also need to sell your passion in it because that is that will actually hold at least a bit of sway and may make the investor a little more interested in in taking on the riskier investment because that's really what you're selling is something is you're really you've really got to convince him to take part in something that's not just a uh that that's not a surefire win because film never is right and that so it's not ever just about money in these circles is really what i is that's just a long-winded way of saying that point but um well let me let me um i'll backtrack so now like say i taken the the input and knowing um the one thing great about that book freakonomics um and that whole um podcast movement in their second book i haven't had a chance to read yet 
But what I they've t- actually my- got a third book out oh. now that I'm reading yeah. right now that is all about getting into the thought process of Freakonomics and how to. It's actually really good. I would recommend it. It's called Think oh. Like a Freak. Yes, that's but yeah. Right. Um, so I love yeah. to. I love what I took away from that is like everybody. If we're all um, all humans, you can sort of understand where they're coming from if you understand where their incentive is. So if you're working with your, you know, your child or you're working with your boss, you're working with coworkers, or if you're working with investors or you're working with other people, like everybody, you know, has this, um, find out what that incentive is and then you'll have a better understanding of, you know, how to work with them or not say manipulate them, but you know how to, to, to talk to them. So now if I understand like the incentive of the investor is the angel investor says, look, um, film sounds fun. So there's some fun because you know what I make I keep making money over you know hand over fist with all these tech apps and stuff like that and it's cool I mean it's but you know, maybe they're maybe become too successful or they're looking for some other edge or something else it isn't interesting we need to discuss like there's sort of a different mindset of those individuals that work with such large amounts of money I have other friends too that work in the investment field and they said they said a lot of their uh, clients they're just sometimes bored. <laughs> Sometimes they're just bored and they're looking for some kind of something edgy or something new to venture into it. But they're, you know, they're smart enough to, you know, not just, you know, just throw their money away, but there is this root incentive that they want something more. And so, okay, so now this is me being role playing again, you know, make believing that I'm at your meetup and I come back again and I'm talking to this angel investor and I just say, "Let me ask you something, Mr. Angel Investor or Mrs. Angel Investor. Uh, do you like scary ghost stories you know or what was your favorite what is the most favorite ghost story you've ever had so maybe the interaction starts that way right so maybe they are maybe we've discovered that they actually do have an interest like oh my gosh when i was a kid at camp i remember the counselor telling us this ghost story and so the concept there is me as a producer or filmmaker instead of just you know blasting out like here's my project would you want to invest it's more like you know, drawing them in as a good storyteller is supposed to. So I would ask that question, like, and try to get a better understanding. Like, maybe they do have a, an amazing affinity for good ghost stories or, or good, you know, scary stories. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. You got to tell me if whether I'm on the right path or not. No, like I you said, actually, you totally are on the right path. Okay. Um, I think that uh, finding the finding any any business relationship is just as much about actually it's probably more about finding the right fit than it is necessarily finding the biggest money um so when you're looking for an angel investor even if you get one that has oodles and oodles of money sometimes it's more important to find one that will actually jive with your project and be the right fit for your investment um what you're saying is if you're talking about it and you happen to to meet an angel investor who just loves who just loves scary movies and loves the and loves ghost stories and all of that then yes uh talking to them and say and engaging with them on their love for ghost stories is a good way to actually get them to be more likely to invest in your project because even though it's risky and they might not make that much money out of it, they get to be a part of telling a story that interests them. Yeah. Um, I mean, the concept, yeah, yeah, the concept there is like, um, work on the emotions. 
Um, exactly. M- meaning that, look, this is going to be a long venture, but if we could make together, you know, a film that scares people because we love scary movies, um, you know, but if we can add to the lexicon of other scary movies, wouldn't it be cool to have your name like I was part of that project, you know? And so in whatever way you can draw into that, those emotions where they might see it like, yeah, it's a risky um, venture because we don't have any guarantees that, it, that it'll work well. I mean, uh, I see the package, you know, the film package, like, okay, here's the script, here's the concept, here's the team behind it that's going to make it. And then, um, but, you know, um, if you didn't have that, that one slight edge of like the emotional irrationale of, like, of just making that decision, like, you know what? It doesn't quite make sense, you know, a hundred, it's not the, the most logical or safe bet on paper, but emotionally it's enough that I believe in it, that I'll, I'll invest into it just to go over the ex, the, the extra edge, it's just because they know like they want to have that emotional investment all the way through, even though there's money to it and there's, we're being as smart as possible. Um, I think that's that one element. Um, if I was an angel investor, you know, knowing that if maybe I was bored or hearing these stories of all these wealthy people that have so much money, they don't know what to do with it. You know, film is so risky in that that respect. Now, let me ask you, film, in your perspective, film by itself is sort of like a, um, those very magical few can have, you know, a long lasting shelf life. But sometimes the film just has a very short shelf life or have has no relevance to the market, you know, after, you know, a week or two, you know. Mm-hmm. So how – and it's just one product where an investor a lot of times wants to see how they can generate money from for the long term. So how does film work into that uh, equation? The way I generally um, sell it is that um, – and that's a really good question – you can actually turn that weakness into a strength in that while you put all your money into the development of the film and actually making the project and va- in the vast majority of the money spent is spent over the first year of production before you see any money coming back in. Um, the good thing about film is that even though it does have a shelf life, it becomes a cash business with very little overhead. Um, once you actually start distributing it. Um, And instead of having to, whereas like a tech investment, as it grows, the scale keeps growing and the money is a lot of times perpetually tied up for years um, as the company's growing until they finally monetize through an IPO or a acquisition to a larger company, anything like that. That's how the investor ends up getting their money back. Whereas if you do it through – whereas a film investment, it is money in upfront, but the monetization is, the, is such that once it's actually been made, there's not that much overhead on it anymore, and they continue to get payments for the life of the film, which is generally only about seven years. Um, but again, if you've done your job well – you are generating cash and not really having that much overhead for the business moving forward on it. So that is, it's just a, it's a self exiting um, investment as opposed to something that requires you have a much larger source of capital or one big event 
to really get the investor's money back, if oh. that makes – yeah. Yeah, so like – um, you know, I wrote a blog post called Hollywood isn't in the film business. It's in the business of exploiting mm-hmm. licenses. You know, and I got that from um, uh, Schuler and Moore, his book uh, called The Biz. And he was – and the mm-hmm. concept there is like whoever controls the license is the king. I mean they you can do anything you want with that. You can exploit it. You can turn into uh, a television series. You can uh, make uh, – sell the license or, li- you know, Profit from the license off, you know, ancillary, you know, merchandise and things like that. So, would the attractiveness to the angel investor be understanding how the control of licenses allows them to um, reap the benefits and the profits and rewards in, you know, like you said, after the product has been finished? Because you said the overhead would be low because you would just necessarily just need somebody to negotiate the different licenses that can come from it, um, which would be normally the distribution company, but. The landscape of distribution companies is changing so much. Um, maybe you can touch a little bit upon that, like your own perspective of of how are distribution companies surviving this uh, major upheaval in the uh, uh, business structure? Um, honestly, I do not have an intelligent answer to that question. Um, so <laughs> I am not really even going um, – I'm not going to ramble and try to bullshit my way through that. But um, it was a uh, – I honestly don't know how um, distributors are going to be able to weather this coming storm. It's um, – what I do know is that uh, most of international sales is a relationship business, and it's definite – and the way that it's going to continue to – function for at least a little bit is going to be on the strength of the relationships between the sales agents and distributors and the uh, people who actually have the power to get content out. But there was a recent article on how Netflix is kind of destroying the uh, market for international sales because once a film gets on Netflix, it's that's all people want. Um, it, it completely destroys its value. Um, in terms of international sales, because it's available everywhere Netflix is. Um, yeah, actually, that was uh, so. Yeah, it was written by Schuler and Moore on Forbes dot com. Yeah. Um, so he, yeah, that title was Netflix will rip the heart out of heart foreign out of- pre-sales. And um, yeah, we can talk a little bit more about that because. The concept for anyone who understands is like when you go to AFM, as in your book it describes, you are there to make relationships with the um, buyers and sellers of film. And it, we have to be kind of specific here. So we, we have a couple models. We have the studio model that we all, you know, there's so much press and blogs and discussion about. Like they they represent, they're like 1% of, uh, of the operating uh, industry, but they produce about ninety percent of everything that we talk about. And so then there's like the subset of the independent film world, like if you follow IndieWire, you know, or anything that goes like just recently the Toronto International uh, Film Festival. So that's sort of like the the, uh, the what we cons- the press considers independent film. But for the Uber Uber indie film play- maker who's just making their own stuff, you know, anywhere in their backyard, that is still like the next level up. So. But then when you go to the American film market or any of these film markets, 
you'll be surprised walking down the the halls and seeing what films are being peddled because you'll see stars that you're like that you know of that you had no idea made a film like that, you know, <laughs> you know, or their genres are very specific. It's action and like horror genres, and nowhere do you see like any like highbrow arts films or dramas being sold, and no. or even comedies are very minimal. Uh, I remember when I was there and I was peddling my American comedy, and they were like, as we you know understand is that they told me like look your cast is okay you know my package looks good but it's very targeted to in you know a domestic american market because none of the dialogue or none of the jokes and stuff will translate well overseas because you know uh, the reference to sense of humor is lost because and they told me the number one uh, box office star comedic star in the world at that particular time was Rowan Atkinson of Mr. Bean and uh, Johnny English because he doesn't say anything. Everything is physical comedy, which translates, you know, worldwide very well. So that was eye-opening. So when you see all these films that are actually being sold and peddled, that is sort of like its own sub-industry. And But these are the guys who work off of like, you know, hey, if you get me this star and this genre, I can kind of you know, get you X amount of dollars in foreign pre-sales, meaning that you might get $2 million, like a promise note saying $2 million for your film. And then a producer will take that promise note, the pre-sale, you know, agreement, and then take that to like a bank, like Comerica or something like that, and then get the loan match for the $2 million. That producer makes the film for $2 million plus maybe whatever state uh, tax subsidies they can get. And then they make the film, uh, they get their t- tax uh, incentives, you know, refunds back, and they take that uh, finished film and they sell. It, they give it to the pre-sales. They get their two million, and that's it. And the, and the reality is, is the film could do d- go nowhere. But to a producer, that does that doesn't matter because as long as they made the film for the amount they say they were going to make, in that line item budget is their producer's fee. And sometimes if you're making like a $10 million film, that producer's fee could be anywhere from 800000 to, you know, $1.2 million or whatever it is. So that's where the incentive comes because that's where people are making their money. That's where the below-the-line crew gets their money, the scale. Um, and, you know, very hardly anybody sees anything in the back-end royalties. So that concept there is like if Netflix shows up at all these different foreign markets, then, the, you know, these a, a whole new subset of audience – is going to get used to watching, you know, movies and entertainment the Netflix way. So that will invade into the power that these uh, sales agents can have in terms of pre-selling, uh, you know, film media to these markets. If Netflix comes in and just takes over, because <laughs> so then all of a sudden, where does the finance model for independent film go if they can't base it off the pre-sale model? Is, are they all going to just end up in the crowdfunding space? Like that's where everybody's going to be able to get their money from. So anyway, that's sort of my my soapbox like uh, analysis of what uh, mm-hmm. Schuler and Moore was talking about in his article. But I would love to hear what your perspective is on that, um, you know, as I kind of rambled on. Sorry. <laughs> uh, no, I think you covered most of the sentient points. Um, and then – I think that the way it's going to head is going to be a lot of crowdfunded projects, at least in the short term. And I think that where it, where the new money is going to come from is going to be something that nobody 
quite yet knows and doesn't really exist yet. There are a lot of new um, ideas. I mean, let's be honest, five years, five, six years ago, none of us would have really thought of crowdfunding. Um, I think that as a real, it, it wasn't part of the conversation like it is today. I think that as we move forward, there's going to be some fairly innovative ways to actually finance film that people just don't know yet. There are some other ideas that I think that there are some directions I think that these things will pop up from. One is that I think the um, the biggest way to finance a film uh, for any filmmaker is going to be building themselves a community and building themselves up as an artist and as somebody with a viewpoint you should listen to. Filmmakers are going to need to become their own, to develop their own cults of personality in order to be able to make money doing what they do. They're going to be, and they're going to need to actually truly engage with their fan bases through social media, through all these other places, and really actually become not just, not just talk down to their filmmakers, to their community, actually involve their community and engage with them to actually be able to make a career moving forward. I think that that's the direction that filmmakers are going to need to move in order to continue to make projects and make a living. And once you've built a strong enough community and a large enough community, as long as it's engaged, you actually can continue to make your projects uh, profitable if you just if you have a big enough fan base and a big enough community that's actually engaged. There was a um, have you heard about the movie Lyle? I have not. Tell me more. Um, Lyle, I'm forgetting who made it, uh, but there was a but they actually released their movie completely free online, just having just lost everything they put into it on the understanding that they would be able to build themselves a bigger fan base and a bigger community that they could then use to monetize their future projects via crowdfunding and actually start selling their future projects once it's actually engaged. Now, the reason they did that is because they realized that with the amount of competition on the market right now, it doesn't necessarily make sense to go into your first indie film with an eye for profit. Your first film should be about dis- establishing your your establishing yourself as an artist and as a filmmaker and starting to build that community that you can then monetize in the future. And have, uh yeah, yeah, I have to sorry, I I do now remember uh reading something on IndieWire yeah. about uh, cuz it was uh, starring Gabby Hoffman and um yeah, so that's so I just looked that up real quick. Um well, go on that, cuz that's actually it's it's it you just kind of hit the nail on the head. They decided that their their main incentive, their main goal, was to mm-hmm. build a uh, to stand out from the pack, um, to do something remarkable, as Seth Godin might say, to find their purple cow, and um, and so now they've got this press about it. You know, it doesn't help. It doesn't hurt that they were able to establish with a a a known actress such as Gabby Hoffman, mm-hmm. who's been around for a long time. Oh God, I, 
she's I loved her as uh, in Field of Dreams. She was such a cute little kid then. <laughs> anyway, so you go on as you were saying. Yeah, like, um, I think that was most of my point was yeah. um, just that I, in the end, I think the most important asset for any the most important couple things that any independent filmmaker is going to need to focus on moving forward is establishing themselves a strong personal brand and really establishing their voice to help set them above the pack and above the um no, the noise that's being created from the sea of content and then uh also actually really engaging with their community and not just not just continually trying to sell also act like genuinely engaging and giving what their community wants instead of just always being like hey i've got this you should buy it give me money you've got to actually give them content talk to them share whatever you can to help enrich your base so that when you do throw that right hook of hey look my new movie's out you should go see it or hey look we're doing a screening in your area through this other organization Go. You should go watch it. People will actually be more likely to be engaged in coming out. And there's actually a whole, whole other idea that one of my uh, partners in the Producer Foundry is working on that's freaking brilliant on that same note, but it's his thing, and also I have to get going fairly soon because I have a 10-15 sales call. <laughs> well, good um, for you, yeah. But yeah, um, so uh, over, but in the end, that's, in the end, that's really going to be the most important thing is community engagement and establishing a really true voice as an artist. I think that those two are going to be the most important skills for any filmmaker moving into the future. Awesome. Awesome. Well, hey, I'll let you go. Uh, get ready for your sales call. and. Hey man, thanks for so much for calling in and just hanging and, and chatting with me and just it was pretty um, impromptu I know but I kind of mm-hmm. just wanted to shoot the shit with you to see um, just have this conversation have people have an opportunity to just kind of eavesdrop on kind of I think what we'd just be talking about anyway if we weren't recording this thing so <laughs> <laughs> no I understand it was actually a lot of fun Scott and uh, if you're ever in the Bay Area for one of our events I'd love to actually have you uh, help lead a conversation because you you definitely seem to know what you're talking about oh thank you so, so um, cool cool yeah. good luck today on the sales thank call you. and I'll follow up with you guys later okay thank you very much all right bye bye and that concludes my interview with producer Ben Yenny up in the Bay Area I enjoyed that conversation it was just kind of cool to uh, just be off the cuff and just sort of talk shop I always enjoy that type of stuff anyhow if you enjoy what you're listening to, if you get a kick out of the uh, Film Trooper podcast, if you find any value in it, I could really use a ratings and review in iTunes. Uh, the more that I get, uh, the more that exposure we can get Film Trooper out to other filmmakers and uh, make a bigger impact on uh, the podcast uh, search engine within iTunes. And if you do leave me a ratings review, I'll be sure to read it on the podcast the next time it comes around. And here's the cool thing if you're a filmmaker, and you leave a really good ratings and review, hopefully five star. Um, it, make sure to like leave either your Twitter handle um, so I can thank you, or you know give a shout out to your film. Like maybe you have a film project, and just sort of leave like the URL or something, and then I'll make sure to mention it on the podcast so people can hear um, more about it. Again, thanks so much for tuning in to the Film Trooper Podcast, and I will catch you next time. <laughs>